This holiday season, you may find yourself on the hunt for a new podcast as some of your go-to favorites may be on break. So fear not, we've got a podcast recommendation just for you. Check out Stolen Lives. Stolen Lives is an Australian-based true crime podcast whose mission is to bring awareness to the missing, murdered, and forgotten from around the world. Here's a little sneak peek of Stolen Lives. We often hear the stories of parents warning their children about the dangers of strangers. But the reality is, children are more likely to come to harm by people they know and trust than people they don't. Here at Stolen Lives, we believe cases involving crimes against children do not get the attention they deserve. Listen to Stolen Lives on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to great podcasts like the one you are listening to today. This episode may contain content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. I'm Nikki. And I'm Mariah. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Body to Burial. Before we jump into our guest this week, just a couple things. Thank you so much to everyone who is subscribing and leaving a review and sending us your questions, your comments. We love to hear from you guys. It helps us become better podcasters. We love answering your questions. We can't think of everything. Nikki and I do try to get all the questions that curious minds might ask, but we do tend to forget some things. So we really appreciate you reaching out with your questions so that we can get them answered. So thank you. Please continue to rate, review, and share the show with your friend. We really appreciate it. I think that's all I have. So Nikki, tell them who we have. Okay, so today we have Tracy Sargent, and she is a canine search and recovery specialist. Amazing. Yep. So... Today it's puppies, 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 puppies. Dogs, dogs, dogs. This is my favorite subject. You know, I love dogs. I know you do. This is this is going to be a good one. I know. I'm excited about it. Yeah, because how do they train them? How long does that take? What age can they start? Well, I'm excited to hear from her because I really think it's interesting and just amazing how they can find people either dead or alive and track them and even just drug dogs too. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind. Yeah, it is amazing that we're able to tap into their abilities and skill set. It's pretty amazing. I know. I'm really excited. So I'm excited to hear about the process and see how it all works. So I'm excited to go get her. All right. Well, let's get to it. I'll bring her in. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you, ladies, for reaching out to me. And it's always an honor to support programs like yours and certainly help educate your listeners and and also try to entertain a little bit as well. We are honored and we are so excited. Let's just jump into it. If you're ready, what is the best way to... I guess, refer to your field? Is it body recovery teams? Is it specific to canine cadaver dogs? Is there a big umbrella that you fit under? Let me explain just a little bit of background, then I'll give you the technical term that that will cover all that. So you have search and rescue. So when people think or hear the word search and rescue, it's searching for missing persons, missing child or a hunter or someone like that. Then you have what they call body recovery or cadaver work or cadaver dogs or human remains detection teams. Those are individuals or resources that look for deceased individuals. However, kind of a blanket stroke would be search and rescue. The technical term and what really accurately depicts what I do is that I am a search, rescue, and recovery specialist. 
the news media, even lay persons, families, when we're looking for deceased persons, they think cadaver dogs. I understand why that term is used because it was started years ago, but technically these dogs are really accurately more described as human remains detection dogs or HRD dogs because they find the full spectrum of deceased individuals, whether it's bones, flesh, body parts, even, let's say, uh, bloody clothing. So the full spectrum of human remains is what these dogs actually search for us, not just a cadaver, which is a full-size body. Okay. Yeah, so I like that term better than cadaver dog because cadaver dog sounds so pigeonholed, and that's not really accurate as to their full capabilities. So about the dogs, where do they come from? How did they initially get into being a part of the teams? Yeah, so police departments, they do get a lot of the dogs from these canine training facilities because the canine handlers go through the training with the dog. These dogs come from a variety of places. Some come from overseas, Europe, Danish dogs are often brought here to the United States. Many of those are German Shepherds, Malinois, Dutch Shepherds, things like that, for example. Bloodhounds are the only dog breed in history that was developed solely to search for human beings. So regardless of what kind of work, whether they're searching for live persons or human remains, they have to have certain drives, temperaments, what we call nerds, meaning they're courageous, they're brave, they're adventurous, they're almost fearless to the point of wanting to get into anything and everything to do these jobs because it's very important. It's people's lives. Of course, there's great dogs here in the United States. You can get them from breeders, maybe sporting competitions that dogs are involved in that. Um, I personally have obtained my dogs by a number of different resources and just unusual circumstances. For example, the best dogs I ever had, really a dog of a lifetime, he was bred by a breeder, was the pick of the litter, was expected to be this world champion performance sporting dog, and then become very sought after stud dog. Well, actually what had happened with him, one of his testicles didn't drop. So they couldn't use him as a stud dog. So they reached out to me and said, listen, this dog needs to go to working home and uh, we'd like to see if you would be interested in him. I evaluated him as a three and a half, four month old puppy and winded up being the best dog and partner I've ever had. What kind of dog was he? He was a solid black German Shepherd, European bloodlines, and he came from, you know, working high performance type of background. And his name was Cinco. He interestingly was born on the fifth month, the fifth day and the fifth year. So it was a perfect name for him. He's a wonderful, wonderful dog. I was so fortunate to spend so many years with him and so many adventures and searches we were on together. And he was trained to find both live persons and deceased persons. So he was what we call dual purpose. So then another example would be shelters. Shelters or rescue groups have wonderful dogs out there. I have acquired several of my dogs in those kind of situations. For example, Chance, my lab that's retired now, he's 12 years old. I acquired him from a woman that does rescues and she had found him at a high kill shelter. His background was 
a family had adopted him as a very young puppy, I don't know, six or eight weeks. And then they put him back into the shelter about three, four months old because, quote, he was chewing up everything. So she reached out to me and she said, quote unquote, this puppy is just different. I've never seen one act like this. And I thought, well, you know what? If this woman is going to take her time, money, and effort to save this puppy's life, I'm going to at least take some time to go over and visit him and see what would be the right home for him, having no intentions whatsoever of adopting him myself because I already had two at the time. So I go and evaluate him at her house and do certain tests with him. And I was really impressed with this little guy. So I took him down the road in a strange environment to see how he would like that. And he did really, really well with that. And I said, yes, this dog or, or puppy, again, he was about four months old, definitely needs a job. He needs to be a working dog, working home. So what I'd like to do is I will take him as a foster parent and train him and, and perhaps place him with another team that needs a dog. So I brought him straight home. And when I came onto my place, I have 50 acres here. I have oh, an agility wow. uh, course. And I thought, just for giggles, let me just see what he does without any prompting at all. He immediately was climbing ladders, an eight-foot-high plank up in the air, going wow. through tunnels, all of this. He just literally took, you know, like a duck to water. And I thought, you know what? May maybe I need to reevaluate this. <laughs> maybe I need to stay here and not go somewhere else. And and changed his name to Chance because he was given a second chance at, you know, at life. That is awesome. Yeah. So I have literally traveled the world with him. Literally. That is great. Yeah. I got him at four months old and he specialized in deceased persons. And his first find was nine months old. And from there, we never looked back. And he's literally been on trains, planes, and automobiles. <laughs> so when you ask the question, where do these dogs come from and how do they get involved in programs like this? I have found there's great dogs in a lot of different places yeah. um, and, and across the spectrum. But the testing and the requirements, the training, the nerves, the drives, all of that, uh, the requirements are exactly the same. Now, me, personally, even though I'm law enforcement, I always have gotten my own dogs. I have selected, purchased, trained, and maintained my own personal dogs. How come? Is that just because you know what you want and what you're looking for? Well, that's a great question. When you look at, let's say, tracking dogs or even HRD dogs, the reality is to maintain and work these dogs, keep them current and all the certifications, all the health requirements, just all of that is very expensive, regardless if you do it as an individual or as an agency. When you look at law enforcement, what is, quote, the best bang for the buck? When you're going to say, all right, I'm going to invest thousands of dollars into this canine and then partner it with an officer, how do I get that investment back? And that is drugs. So many of these dogs oftentimes are trained either single purpose, which is drugs only, or dual purpose, which is oftentimes they want to track the bad guys as well as find the drugs, even apprehend them through bite work, things like that. Because okay. drug dogs 
literally can pay for themselves the first week that they're on the road. So when you look at a dog that is trained to find strictly people, although it's a great resource and it does save a lot of time and money and resources, when you're looking for, let's say, a bad guy or a lost child or even a homicide case, canine resources are incredible tools for these agencies. But they don't bring in any money. Think about it. Yeah, they're just solving a crime or, or finding someone. Absolutely. So when I started this years ago, I started it as a volunteer before I became a police officer, which even to this day, I still do this as a volunteer. And even when I was a law enforcement officer, I still did it as a volunteer. So it, it really started that way. And what I found quickly for me, I consider these dogs a member of my family. I consider them partner, a counselor at times. <laughs> they don't give away your secrets, so you can tell them anything and everything. Yeah. yeah, they're so much more than just a dog to me. So when you have an agency dog, if there's, you know, some changes, the agency has every right to decide, you know what, we want this other person to handle the dog. And they're certainly within that right to do that. So it really, by accident, honestly, happened when I started this as a volunteer with my own personal dog, several things came to light. One, I will always be able to keep this dog with me forever. He's a part of my family. He's my teammate. He's my equal. He's all of that. Secondly, even though I worked with specific agencies as a police officer, I was able to help other agencies without having to ask permission from my then agency because oh. I own the dog. So I could take the dog and help any other agency, whether it's a local, state, or federal agency. And I was able to do that because I owned that dog. And of course, I maintained it myself with my own money and, and all of that. So that really gave me a lot of flexibility because my number one goal in doing this is to help as many people and agencies as I possibly can. Tracy, I have a clarifying question. So when the dogs are brought in to work on a case, like a missing person, let's say, they could either be from an individual like yourself that's just a volunteer with a dog that they privately own, or potentially the police department has a couple of dogs that they have dedicated to use in that purpose. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. So let okay. me tell you just a case I worked last week. She was 82-year-old female, and she walked away from home and disappeared. So she was physically really healthy, but with her advanced age, mentally, she got disoriented. It was the first time she'd ever done this. So the initial response was the local sheriff's office or law enforcement agencies brought out several canine teams that do tracking. Again, these dogs are trained in other things, but they do have that skill set where they can track somebody. Fortunately, the night that she disappeared, it was raining. It was just the weather conditions were not ideal at all. So they used the resources they had at that time which was the right response to try to find her as quickly as possible. Well, fast forward several days later, they did a lot of searching with multiple resources, helicopters, ground searchers, the canines, drones, flyers, news media, and there was just no sighting of her. Well, they called me with the theory that, all right, it's been four days now. She 
may be deceased at this time. So they don't have resources at this law enforcement agency for dogs that do human remains protection. So they brought me in to see if she's still out here and if she's deceased, these dogs, you know, would be able to pick her up. The fun and and happy ending to this story is we searched for two days in, in a large area, and I'll be happy to discuss lost person behavior and how we identify which areas we search. And, and there's, there's a method to the madness of how we search for these individuals based upon why they're missing. So we searched in those what we call uh, high priority areas as well as second, secondary areas. And we covered these extensively with me and my two dogs, Taz and Draco. There was an officer, which also was the investigator and lead investigator for this case. He was with me during these two days. And I told him at the beginning, as well as the family members, these dogs will be able to tell us two things all the time, regardless of who we're looking for and why they're gone. And that is, they will tell us where somebody is, which is obviously the ultimate goal is to find these individuals quickly as possible. But they also tell us where somebody isn't. And what I've learned over the years, ladies, is that knowing where somebody isn't is just as helpful and informative as where somebody is. So process of elimination, process of saying, we know they're not here, so now we can focus resources in this other area that possibly they may be. So what we did in this case, we eliminated a lot of areas. I left, and it was within maybe seven or eight minutes after I left. And again, this was just a few days ago. The investigator called me, and he said, Tracy, you're not going to believe it. She was just found. And I asked him where, because as a canine handler, it does help to figure out where these individuals are and how the dogs work the area and the scent conditions and all of that. It wasn't in an area where we searched. Um, she was actually found in the very back part of somebody's backyard. Oh, wow. So he goes to tell me, initially when he told me she was found, I'm assuming, okay, is she deceased? Is she just in really bad health or what? He said, she is literally sitting up having a conversation with me. And he said, the best part of this story, you're not going to believe who found her. And I said, well, who? He said, a three-year-old boy. Oh, really? Yes. Aww. Playing in his backyard, and he saw her lying on the ground, and he proceeds to point at her. And the mother was in the backyard watching him, and she's like, what are you trying to show me? You know, was it a frog? Was it a bug? <laughs> what would a three-year-old want to show his mother? And when he walked, when she walked up, this was in the neighborhood where this woman lived. So she was well aware that she was missing. And she called 911 and the S and other responders came and took care of her, took to the took her to the hospital and she's expected to make a full recovery. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. So to clarify your question earlier is that is it law enforcement that uses these resources or someone, you know, uh, such as myself? Uh, now, I would say that in my situation, I am law enforcement. Um, I am somewhat retired as far as I don't actively work patrol, but I am a law enforcement officer that is certified and has done many cases as a police officer. But when I arrive, yes, there is the mindset of being a police officer, but the big difference is I'm not a paid person. I'm there to volunteer me and the dog's services to help them in any way I can. So what was interesting, I told the investigator, well, the dogs were 
100% right. And that is, they told us there was no one deceased in the areas that we searched because she was not deceased. Yeah, she wasn't there. That's right. So. Yeah, I want to go back to when you were talking about assessing Cinco and your other dogs that you were getting. What, in that, that initial assessment, when you're kind of deciding, is this dog a work dog? Do they have the mentality? Do they have the spirit? What kind of basic exercises or I, I don't know, drills are you doing with them to determine if it's worth your time to invest in them? Yes, that's a great question. So first and foremost, you certainly want to look at dogs that have that instinct and drive and really history of being working dogs, let's say versus uh, maybe a pug for just physically their faces, they're not going to be able to smell as well as, let's say, a German Shepherd, but just their size and then just workability. That's not what they were designed to do, and that is hunt things. In our case, we want them to hunt people. So first and foremost, we look at breeds that historically have been proven to be high-performing, high-working dogs. From there, me personally, my initial assessment of these dogs, I don't do anything with them. For example, with Chance, I just let him run around her yard. I want to see how he feels about himself, feels about the world, the environment around him. Is he curious? Is he outgoing? Does he have the nerves, meaning if something spooks him, does he tuck his tail and run the other way or does he investigate it? So I want to see what the raw temperament and personality and really attitude of what that dog is. Does he want to bite everything? Does he want to run away from everything? Or does he want to forge ahead really with courage and curiosity about the world around him? From there, I look at their drive. And I do get this question often, how do I make my dogs do this? Well, we don't. What we do, in essence, is channel these natural drives that these dogs already innately have in them. Instead of, let's say, channeling them to track down or hunt down a rabbit or a deer or whatever, we're channeling that drive to hunt down another animal, and that is a human being. And with that drive to hunt something down, we channel it, and when they find that person, it's a positive reinforcement. Oftentimes, they get to play with their toy. They get to play tug. It's a really happy, happy occasion for them. And that's the same aspect with human remains detection. I'll explain that in just a minute as well. But when you're looking at dogs to find live persons, you want a dog that has great stamina, great drive. Again, that instinct, you can't make a dog do this. They either have it or they don't. You also want to make sure that they have enough determination to do this and confidence to do this for long periods of time. The stamina to continue working, even when it's hot, even when it's cold, all of that. So from there, again, live search dogs, we set up scenarios of what we call runaways. And we call these individuals rabbits. With all due respect, we'll say, all right, we get a rabbit, which is a human being, not an actual rabbit, but we call them rabbits just, just as a layman's term of, all right, we need a rabbit to go run off and, and hide for the dog. So does the dog, you know, are they focused? Are they targeting? Are they zeroing in on is that? an actual person the dog is physically going to see go hide or go into a different direction? Or are you using a piece of clothing to create a scent? Let me ask, do y'all understand what the differences are in tracking dogs and area search dogs? Would you like me to explain that? Yes, please do. Let's say somebody left their house, came out the front door, 
turn right, went down the street a half a mile, and then turned left, went into the woods, and fell down and broke a leg. That tracking dog will track with where that person left the house and then go down the driveway, turn right, down the road a half a mile, and then turn left, go across the street, and they're literally tracking that person's route pretty directly. The wind and scent conditions may vary if they track 10 feet off of where that person walked or whatever, but essentially they are tracking that person's route. Whereas a area search dog, we would not start them at the house. Generally, the house has already been searched. If the person was in the front yard, it would be obvious that they would be seen. So we send them to a wooded area where it's much harder to see if somebody's in there. And those dogs are trained to find human scent what creates a scent pool. So when that person fell down and broke their leg and hasn't been moving for hours or even days at a time, it's what we call a scent pool. The longer they sit there, the stronger their scent becomes. It's very similar to dropping a rock or a penny in a pool of water and those ripples come out. Well, the person is the rock or penny and their scent are the ripples. So the ripples get larger and larger as they sit there longer and longer. So when these area search dogs, they're not following the person route of where they went from the house down the road and into the woods. They are searching a wooded area or even open fields or whatever, where we visually could not see somebody in that area looking for human remains in in that scent pool. Once they get into that scent pool, they will go directly to where that person is. So those are the two differences. Another way to describe and people have seen is bird dogs. Bird dogs are essentially area search dogs. They're searching the area for birds. And when they find them, they point, they stop and show the hunter where those birds are. That's an area search dog. It's essentially the same concept when we're searching for people. They search a large area. When they get into that scent pool, they don't stop. They go directly to the person and find where they are. Whereas tracking dogs is, again, following somebody's track or route from where they left from point A and then hopefully leading to where they are at point be. So when training these dogs, there's no shortcuts to doing it right. Training a dog to find live persons, we use live persons. We use them initially. The dog sees this person running away and this person has their toy. So the dog's like, oh my gosh, they have my toy and they're running away. So now you're really stimulating the dog in a couple of ways. One, that prey drive, meaning that dog's innate instinct to be a predator and hunt down prey. Again, this prey is a two-legged human being. So when that person runs away, it really kicks in that dog's natural prey drive to go hunt down that person. So what happens when we set up these scenarios, when the dog finds the person, they get to play with their toy and the dog quickly realizes, oh, wow, if I search for this scent, I get to have all this much fun and I get to use these instincts and these drives that are already in me that I want to do anyway. But in this case, instead of killing the prey, I get to play with it and have the best fun and the best day ever. So it really increases not only these dogs' excitement to do this, but also it nurtures those drives they already have. And it also is a very positive, fun reinforcement game of hide and seek, so to speak, that the dogs absolutely love. We don't make these dogs do this. Now, talking about that concept and looking at 
human remains detection dogs. These are the dogs that specialize in finding people or any human remains that is deceased. Again, human remains could be the full spectrum of skeleton, just bone, or a full-size body where somebody has passed away, body parts, bloody clothing, things related to human remains scent. Now, the interesting difference between a dog that finds live people and deceased persons. Again, I look at the dog's natural personality and temperament, how he views himself and views the world around him. But the first thing I do with a candidate for HRD is that I expose him to the scent of human remains because some dogs have a natural aversion to human remains scent. They're terrified of it. Whereas drug dogs, bomb dogs, again, search and rescue dogs, they don't have any aversions to any of the scent that we expose them to. But some dogs, when you expose them to human remains scent, they're absolutely terrified. It doesn't happen often. It's quite rare. But the few times I've seen it, it is obvious, and we immediately wash that dog out. It's not a training issue. It's not an exposure or socialization issue. It's just the dog's instinct that it does not like this scent, and it will never like this scent. Once we determine that they don't have an aversion to this scent, and we do the toy of them finding, hunting it, and then bringing it back to us, dropping the toy, wanting to stay engaged in this game with them, We will actually take a toy that has scent of human remains. And then we start throwing that toy in different environments and making it harder and harder each time just to see how high their drives are and, again, how high that work ethic is. And if they do all of that, then, you know, that's going to be a really promising candidate that I think is going to be successful and be able to complete their training as well as be successful in searches. So it's really interesting when you have a dog that can do both of those skills, which are very, very different and have very, very different drives. A tracking dog has prey drive. A detection dog in this case, HRD has hunt drive. Mm. So when you look at a dog that is trained to, again, have prey drive to hunt people with tracking, as well as HRD for the hunt drive to find deceased persons that aren't moving around, it's two different skill sets. Always train my dogs when they're due purpose for tracking first. It's the hardest thing in the world physically and mentally for me and the dog. It's literally blood, sweat, and tears. It's just very time intensive. And plus, a tracking dog and a good tracking dog is going to use his nose and keep it on the ground and focus on where that person walked or ran through the area. Whereas a hunt dog or dog that uses the hunting drive, they are too using their nose, but they're hunting the air for scent, whether it's HRD are live persons. So in some ways, it's a little bit easier for, quote, an area search dog because they don't have to stay on track. They can go wander 100 feet to the left and 200 feet to the right and just do it with glee and have fun and just enjoy all that experience. Whereas a tracking dog has to stay focused because if they don't and if the person turned right and they decided to track and turn to the left, they've lost the track. So now they've got to go back and hurt for it. So 
that's one of the many reasons why I start dogs for dual purpose as a tracking dog. I train my dogs to track without a scent article and to track with a scent article because oftentimes we don't know if we're going to have a good scent article for the dog to use. Now, how do we do that? So for example, when I was doing a lot of fugitive searches, a couple of ways we can do that. We can either start the dog at the driver's seat because that's who we want. So we can either start them at the seat, the driver's seat of where that person was sitting, which gives a scent article. Yes. Or somebody says, hey, I just saw him run in the woods over there. Over there might be, you know, 50 feet or let's say 100 feet away. Well, oftentimes it's actually better to go start them where the person ran into the woods. There's no scent article. So I envision this. I don't start the dog exactly where the person went into the woods. So let's say, for example, we see broken branches. We see very obvious evidence that this person went into those woods at that exact place. I don't start them at that exact location. I start them, let's say, 10 feet or more away from the track and at a 90 degree angle. So I will tell the dog, Sook, it tracks 10 or 15 feet, and then it's what we call hit the track. So it will hit the track, make a distinct left or right turn. Now, what's fascinating about this, ladies? I don't know how these dogs know it. I don't know how they do it. I can't explain it. But when we start them on the track, they always go in the direction where the person went. Really? Wow. Yes. It's amazing. So if I start the dog from the left side of the track, 10, 15 feet away, until then the souk and the person went into the woods from the left, the dog will hit the track, turn left, and then we're rocking and rolling. Even wow. though the person 100 feet from the car. That's crazy. Uh, why didn't the dog turn right and go back to the car where the person started? Yeah. I, I can't explain. And, and I've never seen a dog do that before. It's amazing how these dogs do this. Uh, their incredible abilities are like magic to me. When they get there, are they on high alert, already ready to start searching? Oh, yes. They know the game. They feel the energy. It's, again, just this incredible adrenaline rush of hide and go seat, chase, quote, the rabbit, which, again, is this two-person animal, and hunt it down. And they feel that energy. They feel that adrenaline from us, especially if we're looking for fugitives. Yeah. The sirens are going. People are yelling and screaming. I mean, they get really, really hyped up with it and really, really excited about it. So what I would do at that time, the officers would be with me and I would have a compass with me. The dog hits the track, turns exactly 90 degrees to the left into the woods. And I will tell the officer behind me, I said, we've hit the track guys. It's time to rock and roll. And they're behind me. And we, we move and we move fast when we're looking for fugitives. Really? At that point, pull out my compass And I will tell them, all right, we're going due north. So they will get on the radio and they will tell the guys, hey, we're headed to Smith Road directly north. From there, the perimeter guys will drive up to Smith Road because that's the first road that the bad guy is going to hit if we keep pushing him. So this bad guy wants to get away from us as quick as possible and away from the area where he just left. The perimeter guys will sit there and they will sit there quietly. If you can set up that perimeter as quickly as possible so that person can't get into, quote, the rest of the world, the world gets a lot bigger when you're looking for one person. If you make that world 
much smaller and contain them into this area. And this has happened many times. We are pushing these fugitives. One or two things are going to happen. We're going to catch up to him and arrest him, or we're going to push him directly into the perimeter guys, and they're going to catch him and arrest him. It is awesome. There is nothing better, no higher, greater drug in the world catching these bad guys. Some of these guys are really bad. Hers, rapists, cop killers, thugs, yeah. drug dealers, and we have tracked them down in the rain, the snow, the sun, <laughs> in the middle of the night, all occasions. And if you've got a good perimeter and a good team, you're going to be able to catch that person. How quick do you catch them? Like from when you're rocking and rolling to catching them? It really depends upon the area and how long they've been running. Okay. Uh, meaning, did they call me right away? Was I actually working patrol and happened to be involved in the chase as well and immediately get the dog out and we're right behind him? Or did he have an hour head start? So let me tell you two different stories to give you that description. Okay. Very first search I ever did in the state of Georgia when I moved here years ago. I had only been here for a few months and I, I guess the word got out about a girl with a search dog. So they called me. I did not know these officers, but they had heard that I had this tracking dog and I showed up and it was a bad guy. And they told me this guy is pretty dangerous. He's threatened us, our families, all of that. And I said, okay. We started at his vehicle where he exited the vehicle and went around the front of the vehicle and into the woods. What was awesome about this we get into the woods, these two officers with me, as well as other officers that were in the perimeter, they had been searching for this guy for over three hours. Wow. And then they called, and this is probably around midnight, one o'clock in the morning. We get there, we sent the dog on the driver's seat, goes into the woods, and a few minutes later, I stopped the dog. Mind you, if you can picture this, especially with fugitives, I don't recommend that the officers use flashlights, turn their radios down. We try to have to be very stealthy about this because we don't want them backlighting me and the dog and making us a silhouette target and an easy target for the bad guys. So I tell the officers when we get deep into the wood, it's pitch black. We do see in the distance some street lights. So you have a little bit of light there. Our night vision has become accustomed to the lighting or the low light that we're in. I can feel the dog. It's almost like fishing in a fishing line. If you close your eyes and you're fishing, you can feel that line and feeling how a fish tugs or pulls on the fishing line. Yeah. It's very similar to a wrecking dog. So even when I can't see her or see her body language because it's dark, when I'm holding the tracking lead, which is about 30 feet long, it's like feeling a fish tugging on the fishing line. By her response... When she got close to what we call, mentioned earlier, his scent pool, these dogs kick in overdrive because now they have that person's scent, they're in their scent pool, and they literally go into turbo drive because they know the quicker I can get to where this person is, the quicker I can get to play with my toy and have fun with all of this. So when she hit his scent pool, although we were tracking him, he had been there again for two or three hours. His scent pool had really became quite strong. Yeah. Soon as we did that, I stopped her. I turned to the officers. One was on either side of me, to the left and to the right of me. And I turned to both of them. I said, get ready. He's right over there. And I was pointing where the dog was leaning to. Yeah. So they slowly and quietly pulled their guns out 
I pulled my flashlight out of my pocket. I had the dog's lead in my left hand, just feeling how she's pulling and tugging and clawing on the ground. I know we're very, very close. So as soon as she just does that, you know, overdrive, I want to get to him. I pull her back. I shine the light. I say, there he is. They're on either side of me. They come in front of me with guns drawn, yelling at the guy. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. I still have the little flashlight on him. At that point in time, the perimeter guys, which weren't too far away, hear all this yelling and screaming and they see the flashlight. They come running and they're shining lights toward him. At that point, I back out. They've got it controlled. They've got it contained. I go back to the vehicle. We're waiting there. This went on for about 45 minutes, maybe to an hour. They finally bring the guy out. What the officers told me, because during all of that, it would get real quiet. You could hear some voices, but you couldn't understand what they were saying. And then there was a lot of yelling and screaming. And then all of a sudden, you hear this one gunshot. And I was expecting to hear, you know, 100 after that. And it was just dead silent. And you can't see what's going on but you can hear it. You can see the flashlight shining through the woods. Well, when they finally brought him out, the officers told me, Tracy, first of all, you saved our lives. We literally walked over this guy probably a half a dozen times. We don't know why he didn't kill us because the one shot and the yelling and screaming that I heard was when the guy pulled out a 357 out from under his shirt. Really? He was lying on the ground and he pointed the gun and it went off because he was pointing it to his head and then he was pointing it to the officers. And right before he pulled the trigger, he pointed it up in the air. Uh. The only reason why they didn't shoot is because the way the officers were positioned, they were in a circle. So they were afraid of the crossfire. Yeah. Now, getting back to your question, how long did it take for us to find him? He had been missing for three hours. We found him in 16 minutes. Wow, that's quick. I do have a question for you and your listeners. Who do you think is the easiest as well as the hardest persons to find? We're talking about live persons. Is it good guys? Is it children, hunters, old people? I would say children are the easiest. Well, I don't know, because some of them are good hiders. So I guess it would. I would think if they were scared, they might be harder to find because they would be trying to hide. But I don't know. I, I'd say a bad guy because they would leave around probably, I don't know. I'd say a bad guy because there's a car or there's something with their scent and there's usually tracks and movement and like, franticness, I would think. But that's just what I think. No? So y'all were saying the children and bad guys are the easiest. Who do you think would be the hardest? <laughs> probably. Uh, I think the hardest live person to find would be a kid and the easiest would be a bad guy is what I think. Okay. Mine would be the opposite of yours, Nikki. I still think the kids would be easier. And I think a criminal, because there are some fairly smart criminals, would be a little more difficult. But I also think, actually, hold on, I also think just an elderly person, like we talked about earlier, who walked out of their home might be someone that's easier to locate as well, because they probably didn't get as far. These are hard questions, Tracy. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say it's counterintuitive, that question is, or both of those questions. And I would certainly answer in a similar way if I had not been doing this over the years. So my experience would say as a general rule, the easiest people to find, although they can be the most dangerous, are fugitives. Really? Yes. So I was wrong. (laughs) 
Fugitives have one goal in mind, and that is to get away. And they get away by running fast, very destructive. And I even showed some of the guys this on an actual search, but also on some training stuff. If you're looking into the woods and you guys can try this, have a friend or somebody go through the woods and they can do it during the daytime and then come back at night, shine your light. The broken twigs and branches literally are fluorescent. They almost glow at night. Because if you think about it, a branch or a twig is brown or gray on the outside. And when you break it, it's bright white. Yeah. Oftentimes they break these branches because they're, they're not worried about being stealthy, so to speak. They just want to get away as quick as possible. And, and in that, they're breaking a lot of branches. They're causing what we call a lot of sign, which is man tracking tracks or broken twigs or depressed grass or even footprints along a muddy embankment or something like that. So they're leaving a lot of sign for us to follow. But also there is some studies about the adrenaline that uh, these bad guys, they're on an adrenaline rush. Oftentimes they're sweaty. So they're leaving a lot of scent for the dogs as well, as well as the, the disturbance of the vegetation and the environment that they're you know running away from. So that's the easiest defined, uh, again, which sounds counterintuitive, but they are the most dangerous or can be. Exactly. The hardest, I would have never gotten this answer until after I started doing this. The hardest people to find in the absolute world are Alzheimer's or dementia ambulatory male subjects. Really? Yes. And I will tell you from my observation, and we go back to the case that I worked last week. She's 82 years old. She's got dementia, but she physically can walk around. And all the years I've been doing this, I have never found a person with her demographics. Again, older, dementia, but physically able to move around. A female subject, we have never, ever found them more than a half a mile from where they were last seen. Not one time. Now, they might be right on the edge of a half a mile away, or they might be 100 yards away from home, which we've done that as well, or they might be, you know, several hundred yards but they've never been more than a half a mile away. So that's what we focused on, the subject, why they're missing, and focused on the high probable areas. In this case, it was a half mile radius of where she was last seen. And I say radius, there were certain places where there was, you know, four or five foot fencing, which would contain that movement on, let's say, the north side, whereas the south side would be open fields and woods. So she would be, it would be easier for her to get there. Also, interestingly, with subjects like this, not always, and there's some different theories. If I'm trying to figure out which direction to go, because again, she left, they estimate probably two o'clock in the morning. So nobody was awake. Nobody saw her walk out of the house. Nobody saw her walking down the driveway or down the street. So you have no, quote, direction of travel. Where do you begin? Well, individuals like her oftentimes are found in a southerly direction of where they were last seen. It could be southeast. It could be due south, sometimes southwest, but it's typically in a southerly direction. So if I'm trying to figure out out of all the places to start searching, I'm going to start in a southerly direction for a person like that. Mm. Now, when you get to males, 
with dementia or Alzheimer's that are ambulatory. With all due respect, you gentlemen out there, <laughs> y'all keep walking and walking. And we have literally found, I think the furthest, I'm not kidding. The furthest we found one gentleman was like eight miles away. Holy moly. Eight miles away. Yeah. Wow. He kept going and going and going. Now, mind you, the family tells us Oh, well, Grandpa, he can't walk from here to the bathroom without help. And we find them three miles away. Now, that's not to say that he went three miles in a straight line. He may have walked 10 miles to end up three miles from home. (laughs) So with all due respect, you gentlemen out there, y'all don't ask for directions. (laughs) Have you had someone that has tried to shoot at the dog because of you guys first or that hasn't happened yet? Well, it's interesting. So when they see us approaching them pretty aggressively with a big dog and guns, they give up really, really quickly. Or if they decide to fight, they think twice about it. I had one dog that was just the most amazing tracking dog. His name was Logan. He was killed in the line of duty. and. We'll we'll talk about that later, but he literally was just a gentle giant, but he had this massive head. Well, Logan, as much as he loved his toys, he loved people even more. (laughs) And his idea of getting rewarded was to lick people in the face. So (laughs) the guy was face down on the ground. But he had his head turned toward us and we told him, All right, don't don't make a sound. And don't move, we're releasing the dog. So he doesn't know what to expect from this. And a little bit of it is, you know, don't run from the police. So we release the dog and he runs toward the guy as fast as he could, gets down as low as he could, and just starts licking this guy's face like crazy. And of course, the guy turned white and was pretty concerned about what is this dog going to do to me? And he's going to, you know, bite my face off, literally. Uh, He was that big. Would you mind sharing what happened and how often that happens that you've lost a dog? Okay, so Logan, he was born in May, and and there's some relevance to that, but got him as a puppy and uh, just a fantastic tracking dog. But again, as I mentioned earlier with my German Shepherds, I I do train them for dual purpose. So he was a tracking dog and a cadaver dog, or I'm sorry, HRD dog. So I got a call from local officials. I think she was nine years old. A little girl, her remains had been found by, uh, I think it was land surveyors. So they wanted to find any additional remains. And when they determined, all right, who could this possibly be? They figured out she had been missing, gosh, a number of years. I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years. So she had been missing for a long time. Wow. Yeah. So when I took Logan out there to search for additional remains, again, we're looking for bones. He was searching and in the woods, and there was a steep, steep embankment. And mind you, this area was covered in pine trees, so there was a lot of pine straw on the ground. So as he was searching, the pine straw was on the side of the embankment, and he slid down, and it was really steep. And at that exact moment, a car came and hit him in the head. Oh, oh. Killed him instantly. No. And he died in my arms. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one to talk about. So I don't talk about it very often because he died in my arms. He was only three years old and it was really, really hard because I had to put him in my vehicle and he was dead in my back seat for a four hour drive. Oh my gosh. That is painful for you, Tracy. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh. yeah. But let me say this. 
it took me years to get over it. And it's just something that has an impact on you. But I will say that there was a silver lining in all this. I didn't see it at first, but Logan, again, passed away so unexpectedly. He was only three years old. And I really do believe that there's, you know, karma and faith and destiny in a lot of this. And the good part about that tragic story is when he died, there was some news about it and a story about it here in Georgia. Fortunately, again, Faith and Destiny stepped in. This is where the breeder that had Cinco that heard the story, she donated Cinco to me to replace uh, Logan. Oh, my God. That's a beautiful silver lining. Yes. So Cinco winded up being the absolute best, most amazing partner I've ever had in my life. So I have to believe as hard as that was to happen to Logan, I have to believe if that didn't happen, I would have never met and spent many years with Cinco. Totally. Yeah. Like it was meant to be. Unfortunately, the first part had to happen. But yeah. That's wild. And with all of that, not to add to the heartache here, but I had Logan and both Cinco cremated and they will both be buried with me when I die. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So they will be with me forever. Yeah. That's great. And if I recall, they did positively identify this little girl. They were, of course, were able to notify the family. And Logan did find some of her remains before he was killed that day. And there was a conviction to her. She was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. It's like there is good with the sad unfortunately. Yeah. This isn't, you know, it's people see this 10 second clip on a new show or or hear about it. I think really most with anything in life, if you stay with it long enough, you're going to have the high highs and the low lows. You're going to have a heartache, heartbreak, and you're going to love things that you don't want to have to let go, but you do. These dogs are many things to us. They are a tool. They are a resource, but again, they are team members. They are part of the investment team, part of the search team, but they are also family. And I got to say, search and rescue, I would say in general, is a very emotionally charged endeavor mm-hmm. um, in every way with the families, the governmental agencies, the media, the dogs, your own family, your friends. It's a very, very emotionally charged environment to work in. Does it stick with you if you can't find someone with the dog? Say you just can't get someone or find their body or find them alive. Do you ever think about it when you get home or or not really? Yes and no. So when I first started this, I truly was just a young, dumb, stupid kid. <laughs> and I have to say that really was a blessing because, you know, as they say, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> so I was kind of gleefully jumping into this with both my feet, both my arms, my heart, my head, just my soul, everything, uh, gleefully and with complete ignorance. So when I first started this, I did take it, I don't want to say personally, but um, Um, I had the mindset that I've got to find this person, whether they're dead or alive. That's what I have to do. I have to focus on that. That's the only way I'm going to be successful. That's the only way to help these families, these law enforcement agencies, those other folks. That's the only thing that's going to even help 
in any way. And that went on for a number of years. So emotionally, you know, it was that sense of, gosh, I've disappointed these families and they look at you and it's just total heartbreak. And even to this day, when I drive up, there's just this mindset. When they see a canine team, it's almost a relief to them. It's like, oh, finally, they're going to find my person because People just have a different perception of different resources. And when they look at canines, they think finally they're going to be our saving grace, so to speak, and answer a lot of these questions we have. So it is a lot of pressure. It is a lot of responsibility, a lot of obligation. So when I started this initially, when I didn't find that person and and had to tell the family members, you know, it was devastating. I took it very personally that I was a failure. I didn't give them the answers that they deserved. But then I realized through maturity and experience and just living life, really, that by not finding somebody doesn't mean that you're a failure. What I deem as failing now is not trying. So from that perspective, when I go on these searches, I take it very deeply that these families and these officials that have called for me to help, they deserve the absolute best I can give them and my absolute all. That means physically, mentally, emotionally, professionally, my experience, my everything that I have, these families deserve the best that I can give to them. At the same time, the dogs also, these families deserve these dogs to give them their best, to give it their heart and soul, to stay focused, to do their jobs to the best of their abilities, even when the conditions are not favorable for them and not to give up. So from that perspective, what I have found is a peace and an awareness for me as an individual in doing this. The reality is, unlike the movies and TV shows, it's very rare that we show up at the scene and we immediately find what we're searching for. What the reality is, that it's through searching through 100 degree weather, freezing rain, the snow, the wind for hours or days at a time, and sometimes for months or years if we're looking for somebody that's deceased and not find a darn thing. Man. So it doesn't mean that we have failed. It just means that we know more about the case than we did the day before. And that's what I tell these families and these officials. There's only one thing that I can promise you guys at the end of the day. I don't know if we'll find what we're looking for. I don't know if I can answer any of your questions that you may have. But what I can tell you is that we will know guaranteed more at the end of the day about this case, about this person, and about their whereabouts than we did at the beginning of the day. I would say in relationship to that, I do get the question, and it might be of interest to your listeners, the question I get oftentimes is that when we talk about live people and dead people, does it bother you to find dead people? And it's surprising when I talk to reporters or or other folks, just such as yourself, that are interviewing me, they're often surprised when I say no. It doesn't bother me at all. And I have seen people cut up in pieces, burned beyond recognition, fully decomposed, mummified, stabbed. I mean, I've just seen literally the worst of mankind and what you know, people do to each other. And I've seen the best. So when people look at me kind of strange and I tell them, no, it doesn't 
bother me to find dead people. Let me explain why. And it goes back to these families. Yeah. When you work with these families, even the investigators, certainly when a loved one goes missing, it's just a very, very stressful situation for so many reasons. I got to say the reality is talking with families and they don't know where their loved ones are. Mm. That is a worse life than telling the families that I'm sorry to say that your loved one has been found, but they're deceased. 100%. They they respond as expected with just horrific grief and emotions and all of that. But to tell a family that your loved one, I know they're missing and I don't know where they are, that the worst kind of life that any family or individual can live. So when I do find people and they are deceased, I'm certainly not going to say to them, I know this is terrible and I'm sorry that your loved one has been found deceased. But in the back of my mind, I know that they're better off this way than the family that I'm dealing with a week before and we didn't find their loved one. Yeah, I bet. Tracy, I had a couple just technical, I guess you could call them technical questions that I wanted to to have you answer. How many hours of training do the dogs go through? Is it a thousand hours or is it case by case before you determine the dog is ready to go out on a call to a case? I would say, as a general rule, there are some very distinct fits for training for all dogs, but there's also a very wide spectrum about the individual dogs. So if you look at a puppy, it's going to take long just because physically they can only do a certain amount. Also, mentally, they can only, you know, stay focused for so long. As far as a puppy, it does take them longer to train, get them mission ready. Whereas you get a a dog that's, let's say, at least a year old, you can literally hit the ground running with them. And just in weeks time, they can, you know, really be at the level that you feel comfortable taking them out. Now, I will say my my rule of thumb is this. I'm fortunate to be able to do this because I always have at least two working dogs at all times with me and sometimes three. For example, Taz. I took Draco, Chance, and Taz on a search with me um, a year or so ago when I first got Taz. He was in training, but he knew what to do. He was fully trained to be. But as far as saying that I would feel comfortable just using him by himself, he didn't have the experience. So I always take the experienced dogs with me, have them work the area, and let's say by some chance they alert to something or to a, a body or whatever. That's a great opportunity for me to take an experience, a dog that has little or no experience, but has the training behind him to get that experience and exposure in a real search. So it's not like I take a dog that has no experience, no nothing, and just throw them out there. Did y'all know that dogs like people are left-handed or right-handed? Really? I did not. I did not I know did that. I did not know that. And in workshops, I'll ask handlers, and they, they say the same thing most often. I said, well, is your dog left-handed or right-handed? It's like, I have no idea. And I said, okay, we're going to find out. So how we set that up, and this is, again, for tracking, I will have the rabbit, again, the person that runs away, and I will tell them, go, let's say 100 feet, turn left, go another 100 feet, turn right, another 100 feet, turn left, and then so on and so forth. We know exactly where that track is. 
and I'll have the dog and handler start exactly on the track. And when they get to the turn, let's see if the dog turns left or right naturally. Oftentimes they'll turn to the right, but the first turn was a left. So no, no reason to panic. I just tell them stand there, kind of help the dog, maybe pull on the lead a little bit to direct it back toward the left. And when it hits the track again, tell it good boy, good girl, and continue on. When you get to the next turn, again, you should see it ahead and we'll there's different ways we can mark these tracks so we know exactly where the turns are and things like that. So they know exactly, and that's that's the key to training these tracking dogs. The handler needs to know exactly where that track is 100% of the time when you first start a dog. And if they turn right, so at the end of that exercise, they'll say, oh my gosh, my dog is a right-handed dog. I said, okay. I said, what is your next few, you know, as the dog's training progresses and his confidence you know, increases, what kind of tracks are you going to lay? And they'll say, did it? I said, no. I said, you should now have your, your rabbit or your track layer lay twice as many left turns as right turns. And they're like, oh my gosh. So the dog understands that things go to the left too. Mm. They naturally want to go to the right. So that way, when you're tracking somebody, these bad guys or, or missing persons, whether they turn left or right, the dog is going to say, hey, you know what? I turn right. You're not there. I know what you did. You immediately turn left. So they will literally turn around almost immediately and get themselves back on the track when the person turned left. It's really amazing to watch. Wow. wow. What happens when you take them out on a case that day? How many hours will you let them work? Or is it kind of the same sort of thing where you're going to let them tell you when they're done for the day? The timeline that we search with these dogs has a lot to do with the environment. Here in Georgia, and of course, in many places around the country, we have seen historic heat waves and dangerous conditions for man and beast. So a lot of it has to do with the safety factors involved. How do we get around that? There are some strategic ways to do it, and that is starting early in the morning, sometimes at first daylight at 7 a.m., 7.30 in the morning, work till, let's say, 10 o'clock, maybe 11 o'clock at the latest in the morning. And then we'll take an afternoon break, give the dogs time to rest up as well as the heat of the day, and then restart them, you know, late afternoon, early evening. There's two reasons for that, but it has everything to do with scent. The first reason is the dogs in the morning, their nose is moist, it's clean, their energy levels are high, so they will be able to use their nose much more efficiently and effectively in those conditions. But the scent itself, the conditions are favorable for the dogs to pick up that scent. So early in the mornings, it's like fog that has settled in a valley. That is essentially scent, if you look at it from a picture point of view. Those dogs are looking for that scent. It's low to the ground. They can pick it up much more easily. There's usually dew on the ground that's going to keep the, the scent kind of percolated. So then at the, let's say, high noon time frame, there's really an effective or efficient time of day in the heat of the summer for the dogs to work. 
Not to say that they can't, but it has more to do with the scent conditions. At that time of day, the scent conditions, several things are happening. One, if there's any scent there, it's literally going straight up in a very, very small defined area, even with a scent pool. It's going straight up because it's going to the heat. Scent is attracted to heat. That's why dogs can find people underwater. If somebody's underwater 50 feet, their scent is actually being pulled up to the surface because of the heat of the water that is at the surface. Oh, wow. So that scent comes. So that's how dogs find people underwater. And it's actually quite easy for them. The hard part of that is finding the bodies and recovering them from a logistic perspective for safety reasons. And sometimes it's just too dangerous or too difficult to get to them. But from a dog's perspective, the scent literally comes straight up to the surface of the water. And as long as we can get them in that area, they will pick up that scent of that person under the water. So if we're searching at high noon, they're going to get much hotter. They're going to be panning much more aggressively, which does affect their ability to smell scent. The environment is going to be much drier and dusty. The worst scent conditions in the world is a dry, dusty environment. It clogs up their nose. It kills the scent. They can't pick it up. We strategically approach these things from the time of day, the time of year, the environment, the conditions. So there's a lot of factors involved. So in those situations, what I typically do is round robin these dogs. If it's just worst case scenario, work them 20, 30 minutes, put one while one dog is in the truck, you know, staying cool and rested. The other dog's working. So once that dog works 20, 30 minutes, I get the second dog out and I work him for 20 or 30 minutes. We're able to cover a lot of ground in that time frame. Whereas when we're working, let's say in, in the winter here in Georgia, it never gets so cold that it would be extremely rare for scent to be covered up, let's say by, you know, 10 feet of snow as it would maybe up north. So in the winter time, we literally have worked eight, 10 hours and the dogs have had no problems at all working that long. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of different factors that kind of go into their, their work shift, you could call it. Say someone's deceased and if someone moves their body, they would still be able to find that trail because they would smell that scent of the death scent, right? Is that what it is? I like residual scents. Is that what they call it, Tracy? What you're describing is what we call residual scent. Okay. So it is scent that is remaining where the body was placed and then moved later on. We've actually had several cases uh, happen in that, that type of scenario. And the dogs do pick up scent. And y'all bring up a good point when we're talking about scent. When I first started this, I was so focused on finding the individual and uh, felt like that that was the only way to be successful. However, when I changed the mindset of approaching these searches and these search areas from the perspective of the dog is, and I explain it this way, dogs don't find bodies, bombs, or drugs. They do not. They find scent. So if you look at it from the perspective of me as the canine handler approaching this search area, how do I find scent for this dog for him to be able to detect it? There's several ways. One, if let's say somebody has been kidnapped, I literally look at the perspective of the bad guy. Could they logistically 
drive into this area, let's say, you know, they kidnapped this person, put them in the car and drove off with them. Would they logistically be able to get back here with a vehicle and, and kill this person versus, let's say, somebody that's suicidal? So there's different approaches. Like I said earlier, what's very important to me is why is this person missing? Now, from the residual point of view is, all right, does it make sense that this bad guy could actually get this body here? And it is. We determine it is. But the dog is still alerting. What the dogs are trained to do for us, and especially coming from human remains detection, I think the best way to describe it is this. We worked a case where the dog went into the house, we were looking for a 26-year-old female, and the dogs walked into the house, searched a couple of bedrooms, didn't do anything, went into the bathroom, alerted to the garbage can. We found used feminine products in the garbage can. They alerted. We rewarded them for that. They found human remains. They did their job. They then went into the living room. It wasn't cold enough, and this was in South Georgia, so it was a little unusual to have a fireplace in, in a house in South Georgia anyway, but this house did. The dogs went to the fireplace, and it was a large brick fireplace kind of you know area of the living room, and alerted the living room, the fireplace. It made no sense to us why they did that. There wasn't any wood in it. There was just like a few little particles in it, but it, it was just like not even a handful of material. Then they went to the couch and alerted the couch. And we're like, well, did somebody, you know, again, we have, and that's a question I do ask when we look, for, when we look in houses. Do you have menstruating females living in this house? Because that does affect the dogs. They're doing their job. But, you know, a used tampon is not part of a criminal case, but the dogs are still doing their job. So we, we respond and react just like they would. So they responded to the garbage can in the bathroom, the fireplace in the living room, and the sofa in the living room. Then they went outside. Unbeknownst to us, there's not one, but two fire pits of burned stuff. One is smaller and then one is a little bit larger. They alerted to both of those fire pits and were like, this really is strange. I say all that to say, this is what happened in this case. There was the family involved and then there was a friend of the family. The friend of the family gave up the, the details. So they were able to bring family members in and ultimately they were convicted. This young woman, 26 years old, she was lying on the couch. She was menstruating. She had products in the bathroom, garbage can, sleeping on the couch. Her father-in-law put a pillow on top of her head and shot her in the head. Oh, wow. He put the pillow in the fireplace, burnt the pillow. He immediately picked up her body and put it on the dining room table, which was not in the house at the time. Put her on the dining room table, wrapped her up in a tarp, took the dining room table. He had burnt that up in the first fire pit where the dogs alerted. The second mm -hmm. fire pit was the blanket that was covered covering her that had blood splatter that he had burned in the second fire pit. Oh, wow. So for us, it didn't make any sense 
because we didn't know all of this. But yeah. when the dogs alerted to all of that, that's what I talk about. All right, we've got to figure out what's tied to this criminal case and what isn't. The bathroom was not tied to it. The fireplace made no sense because it was just small particles. The couch made not a lot of sense, but these two fire pits in the backyard, it's like, wait a minute, what's going on? The dogs were 100% right. Let's see here. One, two, three, four. Out of those five places, four out of those five places were directly tied to a criminal case. All of that was residual scent. Where we actually found her body was two counties away. That They had put her in the middle of the woods and, and it was the family friend that told us where he didn't kill her. It was just his buddy, which was the father-in-law that killed her said, hey man, I, I need your help. I got to get rid of his body. So he was just helping his buddy. And that's where, that's why he was able to show the body was. Yeah. So that's a great example. And then of course we've worked some cases where the body was placed one area and then later on moved. It doesn't happen often because it's actually quite hard to move a body, especially when it's decomposing, but it does happen and the dogs mm -hmm. will alert to that. Another example is, and we haven't discussed this, we talked about finding bodies and people both dead and alive in all kinds of situations. But a unique thing we started Quite a few years ago is working with archaeologists on what we call, call historical projects. So these are historical battlefields from the Revolutionary War and the Civil War that we have worked with these archaeologists to find where either these mass graves were of these soldiers that were killed in battle or even individual graves. And that's been pretty fascinating. And you're talking two to 300 years old. So that we have found sometimes the dogs will alert and we don't find anything. But then we determine, oh, this is where the primary battle happened. And then there's been blood and, you know, decomposing bodies in this area for weeks or months or even years. But then the bodies were removed and buried somewhere else. And the dogs would alert to that as well as where mass graves were. It's pretty fascinating. That's cool. That's yeah. neat. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Story. Yeah. So these dogs I have seen over the years, they have done things that I thought, oh, I just don't think they're going to be able to do anything here. And they, they come through for us and their remarkable ability and their loyalty. And, and it truly is magic watching these dogs work. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much again for your time this afternoon and, and giving us so much detail and so many stories. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you guys for your program and your platform and doing this. And it's an honor and again, a privilege to be a part of it. And, and I hope this has given your listeners and you some insight to this kind of work and what's involved and, and what these dogs do for us. Yeah, thank you. It's fascinating to me. I love it. Thank you for talking with us and educating us. Thank Thank you anytime. And if I can help you or, or any of your listeners or agencies out there in the future, feel free to reach out to me. And that's what these dogs are here for. And I'm here for is to help in any way. Happy to do it. Thank you. Awesome. So what'd you think? I'm feeling a lot of feelings about her. And I think one of the things that stands out to me the most is how emotional and loving and respectful and how much admiration she has for the dogs that work alongside her. And I knew there would be some aspect of that because obviously we've seen the movies, Dog's Purpose and yada yada. Um, and we see how these people become attached. But she really, the way she speaks about them is just so heartwarming 
and so genuine and but I kind of expected it but she really nailed it home I loved it yeah there's so many things that she talked about that were kind of interesting to me I loved it it just blows my mind that dogs can do that can do anything like that, mm-hmm. like drugs, bodies, alive, blows my mind. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, incredible animals. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, too, about the left or the right, left-handed. Isn't that crazy? Never would have thought that applied to dogs. Right? I know. I'm going to try that out on the pups and see what happens. Yes. Right? We need to know. Are they left or right? Who knows? Starting tomorrow, mm. we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah, you're going to need to do some training on them and... And, and keep us posted. Right? Well, yeah, I loved yeah. this one because I just, it was everything I love. Animals, dogs especially. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can't find people, but even if they're in a state of where they're not alive, you're still finding them and you're still giving families peace. So I will accept that. And I like that. And I feel yeah. like that that was an un, unexpected surprise to me because I didn't never really think about that. But truly, I, I, I can see how no answer is an answer that is actually comforting. So that was was amazing. I loved it. It's on my yes side. Okay. Yes. Well, there we go. Okay. Well, let us know, guys listening out there, if this job is on your yes side or your no side. We'd we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Questions, comments, anything you have for Tracy, for us, you know where to find us. And we love hearing from you guys. So please reach out. Okay. Until next week. All right. Next week it is. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We do encourage you to follow us at Instagram at Body to Burial. Hit us up on Twitter at Body to Burial. And you guessed it, you can send us an email to hello at bodytoburial.com. If you have any guest suggestions, just let us know. Please hit the subscribe button or follow button on whatever app you are listening to. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time.